I'm Sue Nelson and that music, recorded on location in Borneo, is the perfect start to our Planet Earth podcast special. Because we're travelling across the globe to feature our favourite audio diaries from the last year, including the use of cannons to study geese in Ireland. Three, two, one, fire! Meanwhile in Uganda, scientists get down and dirty to study the mongoose. So we're now sitting outside the den, and one of the individuals has just popped its head out and come out to have a look at us, and just uh, delivered a nice faecal sample, which Jenny's gone to get. There are also some Darth Vader impressions from beneath the ice in Antarctica. Oh, have fun, guys! And the downside of working in the Malaysian rainforest. I've just found a leech down my pants. About 30 seconds after I said the leeches aren't too bad today, I felt a slight stabbing pain on my well, my left buttock and I put my hand down my pants and pulled out a tiger leech. And with that image in mind, try to picture the man at the other end of the leech, Tim Cockrell from Cambridge University's zoology department. He's provided us with some superb audio diaries throughout the year. And we're going to start with an extract from this one we featured in May, where Tim gave us an insight into what it's like studying insects in the rainforests of northern Borneo. Standing below a Bornean gibbon, it's about 40 metres above me. This is one of the wake-up calls of the rainforest. It's dangling by one arm from the canopy. And this one's a female, you can tell by the, the call that it's making. And it's establishing its territory. They do this every morning. We stopped for some breakfast, it's about 8 o'clock, and the reason that we're in the forest is that we're setting up an experiment that we're going to come back and check tomorrow, and we're also sussing out one of our field sites. And the reason that we're out here so early, really, is because we decided that this is when the forest gets up, so we'll get up as well and see what we can see. And it really is the best time in the morning to see all of the kind of big species, the charismatic megafauna, as biologists call them. So this morning we've seen gibbons, we've seen red-leaf monkeys, we've seen barking deer, we've seen bearded pigs, and loads and loads of species of bird as well. And it's a really atmospheric time to be out in the forest too. It's shrouded with a gorgeous mist, with the shafts of sunlight seeping through as the sun comes up. And although I say it's when the forest wakes up, really it's more like a change of shifts. So all of the animals that have been active during the night are now finding somewhere to hide and going to bed before the sun comes up. And lots of the other animals that are active during the day, as you can hear the insects are coming up, the insects are starting to call now, lots of the birds are starting to call. We get a dawn chorus par excellence like nowhere else I've ever been. So we're going to go and set up our experiment now. And thankfully, despite last night's rain, the leeches aren't too bad today. We are a bit vigilant because on the way in this morning we saw some elephant dung. Um, now, apart from getting lost and dehydrated in the forest, I think the elephants are probably the most dangerous thing around here, so we're going to keep our eyes out. But I think we're safe. The dung looks so it was at least a few days old. So it's on to set up the experiment, and then we'll come back and check tomorrow.
Well, I spoke too soon. I've just found a leech down my pants. About 30 seconds after I said the leeches aren't too bad today, I felt a slight stabbing pain on my well, my left buttock, and I put my hand down my pants and pulled out a tiger leech. It's actually quite an attractive thing. It's about four centimetres or so long when it's stretched out, and it's currently sitting on my hand. It's I keep rolling it so it's not biting me. So I'm going to flick the thing away and keep moving. So we've arrived at our field site. We're about 400 metres into the pristine rainforest habitat here. And we're checking on an experiment that we set up to test a technique that we're going to be using in the oil palm plantations over the next few weeks. The technique involves making tiny caterpillars out of plasticine and sticking them to the bottom of the leaves in these trees in the rainforest. Now, it's a really simple technique, but it's actually quite effective. And what it does is it tells us if there are any predators that might be eating the pests of the oil palm plantation when we'll be testing it there. So we stick these caterpillars on with superglue, try to avoid sticking our fingers together, and then we come back after a couple of days and check them to see if they've been nibbled by anything. So by looking at the nibble marks, we can tell whether they've been chewed by ants or by pecked by birds or by mammals. So then we can draw some conclusions about the kind of predators that there, there are in the forest and in the plantation and compare the two. So it's quite a positive result so far. We've just checked our tiny little caterpillars and it looks like some of them have been nibbled, some of them have been nibbled by ants, maybe the odd bird. So what we're going to do is leave them for another day. We're off back to the field centre now and then we'll come out tomorrow and check to see if they've been chewed to bits. From Malaysia to Ireland now with ecologist Stuart Bearhop from the University of Exeter. Stuart studies bird migration using a number of techniques, including tagging and the slightly noisier mortifier and cannon method. It's now six o'clock in the morning. We've been up for an hour. It's still dark. The sun's just coming up. Um, we've set nets in the intertidal area where we've seen geese coming in to drink from a freshwater, a uh, little freshwater inflow. So we've set two nets. These are large cargo net kind of things, a bit thinner than that, about... Uh, 25 to 30 metres long and they shoot out about 10 metres. So there's quite a large catch area there but of course it requires the geese to be in the right kind of place for us to get anything. The nets are fired via a mortar system so there's four what we call cannons but they're effectively mortars with charges in them and then there's weights attached to those cannons rammed into the cannons and those are attached to the nets and and that's linked up to uh, a firing box and uh, we send a large voltage down which fires all of the, the charges that are in the cannons and the net shoots out over the birds. We have tended as ecologists to view the annual cycle as a series of discrete segments and it's abundantly clear that that's not the case. So what you can do in the summer is inextricably linked to what happened to you in the previous months because that's going to govern the amount of resources you can devote to reproduction. And this is particularly acute in migratory species because there's a timing element there as well. So they have to be in condition to fuel migration at the right time so they arrive in the breeding grounds at the right time. For these geese in particular, it's even more acute because these geese are not just trying to arrive at the right time, they're not just trying to fuel their migration, but they're also carrying all the resources for reproduction in there with them. So trying to link up these components to the annual cycle, understand how things like winter habitat selection, where the animals particularly go, what kinds of habitats they're choosing, ultimately translates into reproductive success is an important, both from a fundamentally ecological perspective, but also from a conservation perspective. The interesting thing about... 
wildfowl, geese and swans both do this, is that the young have a very long period of dependency. So the young spend pretty much the entire first year of their lives with their parents. This means there's this cultural component to where the young learn to go. So the young learn to visit particular staging areas and they learn to visit particular wintering areas. And what we're interested in from our colour ring birds where we've got these individual marks, we see evidence of groups of individuals you know, remaining together way past the point they become independent. So the idea there is, is that maybe this cultural element creates certainly some sort of barrier to gene flow. And so you have discrete family lineages potentially within different wintering sites. And of course, there is a very interesting way in which population divergence could occur. Once you've got isolation, true isolation that is, and of course we're not saying in this instance we've got true isolation, but once you've got isolation, you have a mechanism by which populations could diverge from one another. And of course that's very interesting because that's the way in which species are formed. Ready? Okay. Uh, switch in. Three, two, one, fire! Especially with these Arctic migrating species, they're potentially sentinels for climate change because most of the models predict that it's the Arctic where we're going to see the effects of climate change happen most rapidly and potentially the earliest. And so... Again, having known individuals, if we understand or have some understanding of the kinds of processes that lead to poor reproduction or good reproduction and the conditions are in place on the wintering and staging grounds, yet we're seeing failures, then we may be able to link that to processes that are going on in the Arctic, like ice, ice cover or well, lack of ice cover, probably. Stuart Bearhop. In October, we featured an audio diary on banded mongooses from Uganda. These fascinating animals live in complex social groups and cooperate to find food and raise their young. What interests Michael Kant from the University of Exeter's School of Biosciences in Cornwall is that the females in a group all give birth at the same time. Some of the mongooses act as babysitters looking after the pups in the den, while others search for food. And studies of these creatures are helping us gain a better understanding of the evolution of cooperation. This is Michael with another early start, this time following a mongoose pack that recently gave birth. It's 6.30am. I'm here with Jennifer Sanderson and we're going to collect some faeces. <laughs> nice thing to do on a first thing in the morning. So I guess we'll explain why when we get there. So we're now sitting outside the den and one of the individuals has just popped its head out and come out to have a look at us and just uh, delivered a nice faecal sample which Jenny's gone to get. And these are highly social animals. They live in large cooperative groups of around 20 individuals and they exhibit this unusual breeding system. They're cooperative breeders which means that adults help to raise offspring that are not their own. You get tremendous variation in the amount of effort that different individuals put into helping to raise the offspring. So one of the questions that Jenny's looking at is she's collecting faecal samples to try and measure the levels of different hormones that are circulating in these different animals and to try correlate this with the differences in their contributions to helping the group to their teamwork. 
So we're here now at this group, Pak1B, that lives around the luxury safari lodge on Weir Peninsula. And these are the most habituated animals. And right now Solomon and Francis are just picking them up and putting them into bags. We're actually catching females that we're going to treat with a contraceptive, which just uh, means that they fail to implant after mating and it's only, we can switch them off for a single breeding attempt and then after that they breed as normal afterwards. Sarah Hodge is in charge of this experiment. So Sarah, just tell me, what, which animals have you caught here? This group has six females of breeding age and four of them are in the sort of older category, they're the more dominant females um, and two of them are a little bit younger. And what we're doing in this experiment is we're giving a contraceptive injection to the younger females and stopping them breeding so that we only have the four older females that will become pregnant and give birth. What we predict will happen is that they'll be more successful when there are only four females breeding, when there are more females breeding. So that's because of the correlational data. When we look at natural variation in the number of breeding females, we find that the, the reproductive success is greatest for individual females when there's three, four, five of them breeding. Is that right? Yeah, so I think when, when too many females breed, then you get too many pups foraging in the group and there's too much competition and the offspring of the older females will suffer because they'll be outcompeted for food. So what we're trying to do in this experiment is bring it down to what we think is the optimal number of breeding females. So what we'll do is compare this litter where there's only four females breeding or three or four females breeding to another litter where all of these females are bred. So we're in the trapping office now. We've anaesthetised the first of these females that we're going to treat with contraceptive and we've just given her a light anaesthetic. So Francis is now just cutting a little bit of fur from the rump of the female. So each of the females has a, an individual shaving mark, which we just clip a little bit of their hair of the fur. And now Francis is checking for ticks and fleas. We can get measures of body condition look at their tooth wear and really see how healthy they are. So that's that female's done now and we just put her back in the cage with a little bit of water for when she wakes up and within about five minutes she'll be looking sort of bright-eyed and bushy-tailed again. Michael Kant reporting from Uganda for the Planet Earth podcast. So far we've been to Europe, Africa and Asia and we're about to hear from a fourth continent and indeed the largest, Antarctica. Claire Lehman is the medical doctor at the British Antarctic Research Station at Rothera. In this audio diary, Claire decided to join the diving team in order to examine one of the most isolated places on Earth from beneath the ice. But first, she had to survive the skidoo ride. Oh. Dive party. Hi Becky, um, that's just to say that we're on the ice by the uh, dive hole. There are five of us, Terry and Andy diving, JJ supervising, Dickie tendering and me. Okay, that's all copied. Next call, uh, 30 Copy that. This is a weight belt to try and go over the buoyancy end of the the dry suit and the undersuit uh, make me sink. And this one is a chest harness. Yep. 
just so the, the safety line is attached to the diver's chest now and underneath our buoyancy control device, our BCD, so that there's no way we can actually lose the attachment to the surface. Okay. So we're always secure. Okay, so now just running through all the checks for the divers to make sure everything's working. Clip, touch your weights, knives, knives, gauges, profile. It's 2125. 2125. That's 21 metres for 25 minutes. So what's Terry checking for? Uh, so just going to go check under the ice to make sure it's all safe. Can you put the trolling please, mate, and just turn the box on? Okay, Andy, have a good go. Oh, have fun, guys. Oh, it's dive team. I team up. Yeah, that's divers in the water. Roger that, next call 30, divers out. Roger. And just to describe the scene for you, we're in Hangar Cove, which is, as the name suggests, just close to the hangar. Um, the sea ice has formed, it's been about minus 20 for the last week. So we've got very thick sea ice at the moment, um, which the guys cut a hole with a chainsaw. And there's some beautiful icebergs which have grounded in shallower waters here. So they've got a dusting of snow on. It's very, very snowy today, but also quite calm. So it's actually not so bad to be outside. So they're now at the deep photographic plates, which are lied about 19, 20 metres. And they're probably only a few metres away from us from where we're standing. And so what they're doing now is Terry's taking photographs whilst Andy lifts off the plate. Once she takes a photo, he turns it around and pops it back down. Just a bit of teamwork, make things go a little bit quicker and a bit easier. What are the settlement plates looking at? It's kind of a long-term monitoring project. They're photographed every, around every three months. And it's just looking to see what colonises on the plates over uh, a long period of time at different locations and at different depths. Because not only do we have ones at 19, 20 metres here, we also have them about 9, 10 metres around here as well. And so Terry takes photographs, she takes them back, records what's actually on the plates and what changes have been made. I'm going for, yeah, so at least 10 years. And it's just all this data is collected and just see over any changes in temperature that we've had, how much things change. Claire Lehman and Mollusk in Antarctica. We started our favourite audio diaries from 2010 in Borneo, and that's where we'll end, with Tim Cockrell reflecting on his time sampling insects in the rainforest. Well, I've finished all of my work in the forest now for this year, and in fact for the whole of my PhD, this was my last of three field trips. And on my way back to the UK, I've stopped off at the house of Matthew Naujau, a friend of mine, who's a musician and an artist. And Matthew practices the traditional arts and skills of the Orang Ulu group of people that live traditionally here in Borneo. And particularly, he makes and plays a musical instrument called the sape. And in a way, to me, Matthew represents the way that Borneo used to be before the logging and the oil palm plantations took over. And they really have taken over. I speak to friends of mine who came here ten years ago and they tell me that the flight to our field site was mainly over forested land, whereas now the flight to our field site is mainly over oil palm plantation. And for me, it's a really sad thing to see so much of the rainforest destroyed by logging and converted to plantation. And then part of me thinks that, is it really reasonable that in a world of nearly 7 billion people, we should expect one of the most productive places on the planet to be covered with rainforest that is essentially useless when you compare it to oil palm plantation or other kinds of agriculture. 
But really, I defy anybody who spent any time in the rainforest at all to say that an oil palm plantation can be better than a lovely primary rainforest. But on the plus side, in Malaysia and in other countries, there are protected areas of forest that, in theory at least, should be safe from logging and conversion to oil palm. The danger, of course, is that if the conservation of our forests worldwide relies on the conservation of these relatively tiny fragments, then the future of rainforests worldwide is built on really, really fragile foundations. And I just hope that if in ten years' time I come back to Borneo, I'll still be able to find this incredible cultural and biological diversity that I've been lucky enough to experience over the past few years. You can hear full versions of all these audio diaries and more on the Planet Earth online website. And do check out our Twitter feed and Facebook page where there's a host of extra material to devour, including videos. We'll be back in three rather than our usual two weeks' time with more news from the natural world in our first podcast of 2011. See you then. Hey.